0: All right, everybody, it's Steph. It's time for part three of the history of philosophers, but we're going to delve into a little bit of the history of philosophy. So we're going to talk about the pre-Socratics, but, 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 oh my God. We're going to focus on Parmenides, but what they were wrestling with, the pre-Socratics, is something that when you think about it, when you go deep into your life, when you go deep into the world, when you go deep into what you're capable of, as a being the compressed concepts, it's freaking mind blowing, and we're gonna go deep and wide and long, just so you understand what they're wrestling with. Because if you don't understand what they're wrestling with, which we all wrestle with, even even now, even today, and perhaps even more so today than in their day, once you understand what the pre-Socratics were wrestling with, you will understand how incredible and dis- and and amazing what they thought of was. Because it. it it sounds mental. It sounds completely mental when we get into it, but I want to presage that because I want to give respect and props to what these thinkers were dealing with. Okay, let me, let me tell you what they're dealing with. Okay, think of something as simple as two and two make four. Two and two make four. Where is that true? Not on your block, not on my block, not in India, not on the moon, not in the asteroid belt... Where is 2 and 2 make 4 true? Everywhere. Across the universe. Across the entire universe. Which I'm going to talk about as being infinite. And I'm going to talk about time as being eternal. Forgive me for that. I know that there are some theoretical bounds. But we're talking about the pre-Socratic. So let's just put on a little togas for a moment and let the uh, breeze flap up our butts and uh, get get to where they were coming from. So 2 and 2 make 4... It sits in your head. You can you can close your eyes. You can even visualize it in little neon dots in the blue, or the orange and vaguely blue disco light of your closed eyeballs with a light on you, right? Two and two make four it sits in your head. A little fragment, a little splinter in the mind's eye. Two and two make four it sits inside your head. But it was valid before you. It's valid while you're alive. And it's valid after you're dead. Oh, do you get it? Two and two make four is eternal. And it's infinite. So what's in your head, just something as simple as two and two make four, is eternal and infinite. Now that's wild that you can have something eternal and infinite in not just the limited space of your mind, but in the short lifespan of your brain. Now, you could say, ah, yes, but the numbers 2 and 2 and 4 and, and the equation did not exist before mankind did. Well, but the facts did. The the fact that we have labels for them, two and two, maybe we think of two oranges next to two oranges, there are four oranges. The fact that we label them is how they are eternal, because they're describing things that are eternal. H2O, two hydrogens and an oxygen, gets water, always have, always will. Now, did that mean that the the labels the names the the h2o signature no that didn't i get that's with us but we're talking about things that are eternal do you ever get this wild feeling i remember when i was a a kid when i first moved to canada i went to the science center a lot and i went back there with my daughter and a lot of fun went to the science center and i remember there was a little video there i still remember it i actually went back to watch it with my daughter there's a little video there i don't know if you've seen this kind of thing but what it does is it starts with a man lying in a park. And it zooms out, zooms out, zooms out, right? To the city, to the country, to the hemisphere, to the world, to the moon, the orbit of the moon. And it just goes all the way out. You know, Mars goes out through the asteroid belt, plus Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, and just goes way out, way out, and out past the. Uh, the arm of the, the, the galaxy and then out to the cluster of galaxies, just way out, 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 right? And I remember watching that when I was 11 or so and just feeling my mind stretch like a Gumby between two charging horses going apart, just ah, stretch, 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 like holy crap. The universe fits in my mind. Do you get that? Do you get this? How incredible that is! It Just blows my mind every time I think about it, and it should. It really. If it, if it doesn't blow your mind, rewind and start again. The universe fits in your mind, and you can find these videos all over the place. Right, zoom out. Now I did end up zooming in and went to the microscopic, like the fantastic journey, Isaac Asimov, corpuscles, uh, corpuscles, and so on, all right down to to atoms, and so. The tiny stuff and the infinite stuff fits in our brain. Our brain can go to the end of the universe, basically infinity, and it can go to subatomic quarks. And that fits in our brain. Eternity fits in our mortality. Infinity fits in our tiny brains. Our brain mass relative to the universe is unbelievably, monstrously, microscopically, subatomically tiny. It's a t- a tiny, tiny compared to the size of the universe. But, boom, the universe fits in our head. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? The universe fits in our head. You ever try to hug a tree like a big-ass tree? You know, maybe some sequoia or or something like that. Well, you can and then you can't, right? Tree's too big to hug. You have a, you know, as kids we climb trees, right? We can only climb so high. We fall, we learn a lesson or we chicken out as I often did and don't want to learn that kind of lesson and get a broken leg or something. So, a tree, we can't even hug it. But the Amazon fits in our minds. The concept of the Amazon fits in our minds. Our mind, our brains, can eat an entire tropical forest. I remember, I was very fascinated by the ocean when I was younger, and I remember learning about the Mariana Trench. You know, you drop a stone off a boat, it takes an hour to hit the bottom. It's miles and miles down. The Mariana Trench fits in our mind. (laughs) <laughs> you've got to think of your brain as like this tiny thing. You know, you see those little cartoons where the tiny thing eats the bigger thing, right? Well, our brains open up and swallow the entire universe. Atoms we can't see, we can see in our brain. Ultimate magnification of concepts. Places we can't go, we can envision, and accurately so because we know the principles of matter that go on to the end of the universe, and there's no place in the universe where the principles of matter don't work, don't exist, aren't valid. So just when we first began to grasp concepts that were infinite and eternal, it messed up people's minds in the most beautiful way humanly possible. And just think about this. Anything, right? I'm looking at my foot here. I wanted to sit in a comfy place to do this show because I want to let my mind play. Looking at my foot. Five toes. Hope you got five. And I've got the concept of foot, which we share. I know your feet. I've never met you. Probably. Probably never will meet you except in the mind, which is where it really matters. I know your feet. I know your feet. It's wild. I know what I've never seen. I know what I never will see. And I've got a concept called foot that includes the bottom of a chair, the foot of a chair, the foot of a mountain, a foot length. We have concepts that reach back through time and, and animate dinosaurs. I don't just mean in CGI, but in our minds, in our concepts, in our understanding. The infinity of your mind. And listen, you don't have to be a physicist or a biologist. You don't have to be super smart. You're like The person of average intelligence can completely and totally grasp, even a person of below average intelligence can completely and totally grasp eternity and infinity, which we do not experience and never will. Now, I don't think anybody really knows how and where concepts emerged. I guess Arthur C. Clarke in 2001 had his own Playground of the Gods scenario, but nobody really knows how this came about. But when it did came about, it was an unbelievable explosion in the human mind. No longer based on the evidence of the senses, can deny the evidence of the senses. Doesn't go wandering off in the desert to drink from a mirage, because you know it's probably a mirage, so you can deny the evidence of your senses. Because the senses are all limited. You can't see infinity. You can't see eternity. I can't see your feet, but my concept, my, my conceptual understanding of feet allows me to identify them correctly, and I can visualize them if I want. Might want to get a mani petty. But anyway. So the senses are limited. The senses do not show you concepts. The senses give you the raw data, which your mind can then transform into concepts. I mean, your senses don't even show you trees. Your senses show you light and dark and color. That's all your sense, like your eyes. That's all they show you, light, dark, and color. Now you say, oh, that's a tree. Well, the tree is the concept in your mind derived from the evidence of your senses. But your senses will live and die, but the concept lives forever. You have an idea of gravity, right? When you were kids, you, like me, like every other kid, looks down from a high wall and says, ooh, can I make that jump? I remember when I jumped out of an airplane when I was 17, when I was skydiving, I remember very clearly my entire body tensing up because I fell for like 10 seconds and there's no way in my body's experience that you fall for 10 seconds without dying. So if you're, you know, tree, well, you need the evolution of the tree and all of that. I said, let's go pure eternity gravity is infinite and eternal. It lasts throughout all time that we know of and it lasts throughout every physical space that we know of. It is universal everywhere, you know it, it surrounds the universe, it binds us together, it binds us together, actually kind of <laughs> binds us to the ground and grinds binds binds the uh, ground to us a little bit. But you see gravity is eternal, but your concept of gravity is learned, lives within you, And dies. But gravity is eternal. But your fragment of gravity that lives and dies is mortal. So you grab off a chunk of eternity. We're constantly grabbing off chunks of eternity and stuffing them into our brains. It's freaky. It's wild. It's incredible. You look at... I mean, I remember when I was first told by a friend of my father's. I was first told... (laughs) that all the stars are suns. Blue my gourd. And then he was telling me all about how that sun could have exploded, like Alpha Centauri could explode 4.3 light years away. It could, ex- could have exploded 4.2 light years. Uh, 4.2 years ago, we wouldn't even know. And he said, you know, some of, these, some of the light from these stars is coming from thousands of years ago. There's one star, and he pointed it out. It says, that's 1750. The guy knew his stars. Like a paparazzi, I guess. And that sense of eternity. And I remember once lying in the snow on a bitterly cold and clear Canadian winter night. Lying in the snow. I must have been 16 or 17. Moonless night. And I got... The 3D of the stars. You get that? I mean, I know that the brighter ones aren't always closer and the dimmer ones aren't f- further away. But that's kind of how it looks. But instead of the stars being like a bowl, you know, like a colander over the <laughs> over the sky that the light gets through, I got the 3D of the stars. Engine Hiss Star Raider style from the old Atari. I got that it was 3D, that it went on and on forever. And I felt both unbelievably small. And people look at the universe and say, oh, it makes me feel so small. I did. I get that. I feel unbelievably small. My brain is unbelievably small compared uh, compared to an elephant brain. But I felt both unbelievably small and also that my mind reached as far as the farthest star I could see. Because the farthest star that I could see was in my brain. Now, the star is billions of years old, would last for billions of years longer, but it's going to live in the short firefly flash of my life. So I, philosophers and everyone who mulls this stuff over, which is just about everyone at one time or another, we've got to deal with this unbelievable thing, which is our tiny brain eats up the entire universe, contains the entire universe, eternal, all time, that we flash into being, like a meteor hitting the atmosphere, flashes into being the light and then dies. And we are incredibly brief relative to the life of the universe, which is eternity as far as we know. We're we're infinitely brief, but we contain infinity. We're infinitely small, but we create infinite. We we contain infinity. We're infinitely brief, but we contain eternity. (sighs) That's the most incredible thing about this unbelievable gift of having a human brain, which is why, I don't know, being depressed is strange to me. So I wanted to to point that out because people take the local and extrapolate it to valid concepts, not invalid concepts, but valid concepts. Now, of course, not all of our concepts are valid. Some are self-contradictory, some don't accord with reason and evidence but the concepts that we use to survive are valid otherwise we couldn't we couldn't survive right we have an instinct to correctly identify reality otherwise we couldn't survive we also have an instinct that reality as we perceive it through the senses doesn't give us the concepts right That the senses alone don't give us the concepts. Where the hell do the concepts come from? And there's this unbelievable wrestle throughout the entire history of philosophy. Where do these concepts come from? How do we know eternity if we've not experienced it? How do we know infinity if we can't even really comprehend it? Why do we have a word for something that we don't experience? How the hell do we know when a sapling becomes a tree, when a child becomes an adult? How do we know? How do we know how many trees it takes to make a forest? It's wild. I wrote poems about this when I was younger. Like, it's just wild. And I I wrote a poem about a guy looking at the woods and saying, nature's a bitch. Because we all think that, you know, This recurrence, right? We we think, oh, we we we're born in the spring, we grow in the summer, we grow older in the winter, and we die in the fall, and we we unite ourselves with nature in that kind of way. But it's not how it is, because we die. The trees get reborn, or the trees renew. We don't. So I I just when you start to slow down your thought processes and you look at everything, and there's this bit in Fight Club where. Labels are attached to everything he looks at. So labels are attached to everything that we look at, and those labels are eternal, eternal. Oh my God, it's incredible. They are eternal and infinite. Now, of course, it's true. You look at a TV, the TV did not exist for eternity, for sure, but all the atoms that make up the TV existed for eternity, right? Matter can be neither created nor destroyed, only transferred to energy and back. And because... So, and and because we didn't have a theory of atoms at all, people didn't have a theory of atoms. They didn't have microscopes, certainly not atomic microscopes. They didn't have any way of peering down into the juicy innards of things. They didn't have telescopes. I mean, Aristotle went half crazy trying to figure out what caused the tides. I didn't know, couldn't imagine, couldn't imagine that the moon would do it. It's too far away. I mean, they were able to figure out the distance of the moon, Right and the circumference of the earth. You put a stick in different areas, you measure the sunlight and right compare notes, you can get the shadow, get the size. So I, I don't want to labor this point, but it's really, if you want to know what it is to be human, it's to be an infinite, infinitesimally small being whose mind can re- contains everything all the time, eternity and infinity. And the concepts that we have a good chunk of them are eternal. And everything we have a concept about is created from matter that is eternal. And again, they didn't know protons, neutrons, they didn't know electrons, they didn't know quarks, they didn't know atoms. So the question is, how do we know things? Now, my modern argument is that we have concepts because there are atoms right the atoms of a tree have similarities the atoms of the feet have similarity and of course and and I'm not saying just atoms but we have concepts because atoms have stable properties my foot is flesh and bone and muscle and blood and meat and it doesn't suddenly turn into cubic zircona tomorrow and then into fire the next day and whatever it is right that would be a dream or a nightmare or a crazy person having fantasies and visions right so my foot is composed of atoms that I get renew every seven years or whatever time it is, but they're stable. I mean, you, you couldn't live if you're if atoms didn't have stable properties. And how atoms produce concepts, my God, don't even get me started. Right? You are composed entirely of matter and energy. None of that matter and energy can produce a concept, but you altogether can. It's wild that atoms which cannot produce concepts can produce aggregations that contain the concept of atoms. <laughs> you understand? It's, it's, it's wild. And I say freaky not because it's weird. It's beautiful. It's, un, it's incredible. It's, it's how we're having this conversation. It's beautiful. awe inspiring. And yeah, a little freaky. <laughs> a little freaky. So people wrestling with concepts... Right. Now I've always said that concepts are imperfectly derived from instances. And by imperfectly derived I mean that in any conflict between the concept and the instance, the instance wins. Right. If you have a theory, this is a scientific method, right? So if you have a theory and you test it against matter and your matter disproves your theory, your theory is invalid. Right? If you say mammals have particular characteristics and then you include a pebble, then it can't be a mammal, right? Because it doesn't possess warm blood, hair, live, young, you name it, right? So we get concepts from the evidence of the senses, and the evidence of the senses transmits to us the behavior of matter, of of atoms, basically, and from there we can extrapolate in a valid way that the behavior of atoms is consistent throughout the universe and the properties and energies of matter are consistent throughout the universe. Matter and its laws are consistent throughout the universe. Boom, done. Done and dusted. So our senses give us evidence of the behavior of matter and energy. And once we understand, and this is really the fireworks of conceptualization in the human brain, once we understand that the behavior of matter and energy It's perfectly consistent across the universe for all time. Boom. Concepts. Evidence of the senses extrapolated to universals. Now, I have the benefit of atoms. I have the benefit of modern science. I have all of this kind of cool stuff. And just, I've I've never been fooled by my senses. I've been fooled by women. I've been fooled by money. I've been fooled in business. I've been fooled about the integrity of social media platforms, but I've not been fooled by my senses. Okay, so... This backstory is essential to understanding what philosophy is wrestling with. Where the concepts come from? They're, they're much bigger than the human mind. Now, anything that's bigger from the human mind, we can't imagine, comes from within the human mind. <laughs> of course. How could it be? How could it be if you were to say that I have a house that fits inside a ping pong ball I would say you were wrong, <laughs> you were incorrect. Something much larger or something larger cannot fit into something smaller. How the hell can eternity and infinity fit into the human mind? <laughs> I mean, it's wild, it's wi- And so the natural temptation is when you see something is much larger then it has to be outside of you. We have the concept of a forest, but a forest is way bigger than we are. The forest is outside us and is way bigger than us. So then there is a great temptation, and I completely understand this temptation, to say, the forest is way bigger than us and outside of us, and therefore, the concept is way bigger than us and outside of us. This is Plato's forms. This is the new realm of uh, Kant. This is nirvana. This is, right, this is, and, and, and it's, it's this dude, Parmenides, right? So where does, where do our concepts come from? And Plato says, well, we know what a table is because we were floating in a, ro- a realm of eternal forms. We, we saw the perfect table and then we hear, here, right? So he's like, concepts are eternal and outside us. They're eternal, they're perfect and outside us. And it's so tempting to, to, to imagine that because they are perfect. They are t- eternal, but they're inside us, but they come from outside us. Right? So Plato said, we're in the perfect world of forms. We see the table. We are born. And we process the table as an echo of this perfect table we saw before we were born. And Aristotle says, no, 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 no. dude. <laughs> Drop the spliff, right? So We see things being used as a table and we slow like we don't we're not born with any concepts, but we have a great conceptual capacity or ability. So what we do is we see things being used as a table. We're told that is a table and we understand its purpose and why it's constructed. And then we're able to identify tables going forward because they're all kind of made the same way. And trees have similar characteristics and horses have similar characteristics which are transmitted through the evidence of the senses based upon the atoms and the biology of their evolution and all that, although he wouldn't have said evolution in particular. But yeah, so how do we get eternity and infinity and perfection into our mortal, short, faulty brains (laughs) through senses that you know, I mean, a lot of philosophers really only get their wisdom on later on in life when the senses are starting to fail. Right? Your hearing's beginning to falter and your eyes are beginning to falter. And that is a very big challenge. It's a very big challenge. Like a very famous poem. talks about this uh, just a, a little bit, right? Auguries of innocence, right? To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wild flower... Hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. Right? What does that mean? To see a world in a grain of sand. You do see a world in a grain of sand. This is from William Blake. You do see a world in a grain of sand. You see what he's wrestling with here? Because you see a grain of sand and you understand sand. You understand the concept. You understand beaches all over the world. You understand sand throughout eternity and infinity and all that, right? You say, and heaven in a wild flower. Beauty, you can abstract beauty to perfect beauty, which is heaven. The wildflower gives you the concept of beauty. You can expand that concept of beauty to eternity and infinity, and you get heaven. He says, hold infinity in the palm of your hand. The palm of your hand is infinity. (laughs) The palm of your hand is infinity, because it's composed of atoms that have always existed. You don't hold infinity in the palm of your hand. The palm of your hand is infinity. Of course, he didn't have atoms. And eternity in an hour. You do hold eternity in an hour. You hold eternity in your short mortal lifespan. Are you getting... I'm sorry, I hate to keep repeating myself, but I got to tell you, it's just massive. And this is what the pre-Socratics were wrestling with because they were able... One of the first groups really to conceptualize and work with the problem of concepts. It's a problem in concepts. That's all the way back to my introduction to philosophy, right? And by the by, so I'm going through uh, uh, this guy, uh, Stephen Law. He's a pretty good uh, thinker. He's a professor of philosophy, and he's aggregated this. So I'm going to, you know, with some exceptions, I'm going to use his list of, uh, you know, in in sequence and order and all that. So uh, he's got a book called The Great Philosophers. So here we go. Here we go. Parmenides, right? So he is 510 to 450 B.C. Uh, Pre-Socratics, but he was one of the great metaphysicians. Really, I mean, I wouldn't say the first, because who knows who the first was. One of the great metaphysicians, study of the nature of reality. He was arguably a monist, and monist is somebody who believes that, you know, when everyone's we are all one, everything in the universe is one, there's a oneness to the universe, everything is one thing, everything is one substance. We're all reflections of a of a central thing and all that. and, And so that's that's monism. And To me, that's closer to physical laws. Atoms are not all one and the same thing, but physical laws are the same thing, and they don't exist in the way that atoms do. Gravity doesn't exist in the way that atoms do, so I would say monism is probably closer to, like, we are all thing. We are all one thing means we're all subject to the same laws, and I would say it's that instinctual thing as a whole. So Parmenides, he came from a very famous family on the uh, Greek colony of Elea, so I guess Italian, but yeah, Greek, he's back to Greek. Uh, on the south coast of Italy. So it was a colony. And he was fairly famous. He was pretty well respected. He was a lawmaker. He drafted laws or legislation, and, and the citizens of the colony had to swear to obey his legislation. Now, oh, man, the, the, the stuff that's lost is brutal, uh, horrendous. I, I wonder, uh, occasionally with great mental torture, what, you know, Library of Alexandria having not been burned, works not being lost... What do we have from Parmenides? Well, we have a poem on nature. I actually read this in my teens, and the poem we don't even have all of it. And what's annoying is that, like, ah, like Aristotle was considered to be a great writer, probably not as good as Plato, who's just about the best. But what do we have from Aristotle? He has a stu- We have his student notes and things like. It's just really annoying because I bet you he put it a whole lot better like I listen to people I read people trying to describe my arguments back to me and it's like god I'm glad I'm I'm glad you can get to the source here so the reason we have his poem on nature is because other people copied it out to rebut it other people copied it out to make notes on it and we don't have all of it and um yeah it's it's pretty rough so the poem I mean, it's a bit of a drug trip at the beginning, right? He's taken by chariot to the palace of a goddess. And the goddess, the muse, the Beatrice, instructs him on the true nature of reality and truth and validity and facts, reason, and tells him all about the deceptive nature of opinions and and appearance and sophistry and surface things and, and all of that, right? And, okay, again, you know, be patient with the guy because it's a long time ago and Lord Lord knows we haven't seemed to have decisively solved this problem of eternity in our mortal minds quite yet. And, and this is where people get the concept of God from, right? And this is not a, a proof or disproof of God at all. I'm just saying that you can completely understand when you say, where do we get the concept of a forest from? Because it's bigger than us and it's outside of us, the forest itself. But the concept isn't. Then, when you think of eternity, virtue, wisdom, knowledge, infinity, those are big concepts. They're way bigger than us and they're outside of us. Well it's very easy then to anthropomorphize those concepts, and that's totally fair because the concepts only exist because we exist and think about them, to anthropomorphize the universe as being inhabited by those concepts united in the form of God. Again, not a disproof, I'm just saying that the eternal recurrence of God in people's minds I think has a lot to do with this. So, Parmenides Puts out this argument. Well, it's a series of arguments. I know it's going to sound trippy, but you know, bear with the guy because I mean, he was smart as a whip, right? He said uh, nothing comes into existence, nothing ends, nothing ceases to be, nothing moves from one place to another, and nothing ever changes. And they're similar to Buddhism here where they say everything's in flux, you don't have any permanent nature and all of that. Now, is there an instinct, and Democritus went further with this, is there an instinct that says, well, nothing is created and nothing is destroyed? Well, that's true. For the atoms that compose me will go into the ground, will go into a lab, maybe we will go into worms, we will go into whatever, into the air. So... He says that the change that we see is an illusion. And, you know, it, 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 he's right in a way, of course, right? I mean, you, you set fire to a bunch of logs, the logs turn into ash, and where do the logs go? Well, he says, no, nothing's created, nothing's destroyed. Well, that's true. The, log, the atoms that compose the logs have now gone up into smoke, they've gone into the air, right? So, And, and nothing does change, in a sense. The carbon atoms may migrate from a tree to the air to the ground to a worm to me. It's the same atoms. So from a micro level, we can understand his argument. Now, you could say, of course, why he didn't have the argument for that, right? But if he had an instinct that the reason we have concepts is based on permanence and the things we think are changing are not really changing, well, you can see where that's true, right? We have concepts because things have permanent natures. And we think things are changing, that the log in the fire is disappearing, but it's not. The atoms, it's changing its form, but it's not the atoms don't change. The atoms aren't destroyed. So, nothing changes. Nothing comes into being. Nothing goes away or ceases to be. Nothing moves. And the plurality, the multiplicity of things that we think we see in the universe, in the world, for Parmenides, just an illusion. It's an illusion. It's called the Parmenidean One. All is one, beyond time, nothing changes. It's all, I won't say one blob or one board because that sounds disrespectful to our ancient friend, but everything is just, and everything that seems to change is just an illusion. So, the, the quote from him, right, there's a couple of quotes worth mentioning. He says, How could what is perish? How could it have come into being? For if it came into being, it is not, nor is it, if ever, it is going to be. Thus, coming into being is extinguished and destruction unknown, right? Blah, 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 right? How could what is perish? And <clears throat> logically, something that is, how could it cease to be? I would assume that you can look at emergent properties like life and say, well, life can cease to exist. But the atoms don't, right? How could what is perish? How could something that is not be here? How could something that is vanish? And you see this all the time, right? You see, oh, they, they bulldozed a house, right? I remember when I was a kid, I saw a house fire. The, the house fire, the burned, bulldozed the house, right? So the house is gone, but the rubble remains, and it took them forever to clear that rubble, right? So the bits of the house didn't disappear. So how could what is perish? How could it have come into being? Can something come out of Nothing. Right, this is sort of the law of the base physics right the eternality of matter How could it have come into being how could something how could something exist? I mean are you saying that nothing can produce something? something can produce itself none of this makes any sense for if it came into being it is not nor is it if ever it is going to be right if it came into being I think it means it was not. Nor is it ever it, it is, nor, nor is it, if ever it is going to be. Thus coming into being is extinguished and destruction unknown. Now, not the most solid or lengthy of arguments, but you can see where he's coming from. So here's something else that uh, Parmenides says. That which is there to be spoken and thought of must be that which is there to be spoken and thought of must be. And I mean, I remember this from a book I read as a teenager, *Invasion of the Body Snatchers*, where the guy says, uh, "Yeah, we we can't create anything in our minds. You know, we can we can take a giant lizard and put wings on it, and a dragon. But it's just we know what wings are, we know what lizards are. We just combine the two. We can make a horse with a horn on its head, but we know that there's a rhino." and we know that there's a stag, and uh, we just put that on a horse, right? And so, to me, when he says, that which is there to be spoken and thought of must be, can you create something entirely new out of nothing in your mind? I'm not sure that you can, or if you could, I'm not sure you could communicate it, because language is historical and empirical, right? Language is for things that are, named in the past, things that have existed in the past. You can assemble things, for sure. But can you think of something completely new? I say, ah, well, UPB is new. It's like, well, UPB is a new argument using existing logic, which is a new painting using existing paint. That which is there to be spoken and thought of must be. It is impossible to even conceive of things that don't exist. I mean, the translation is always tough, right? I say like I've done them, but I understand that the translations are tough across thousands of years and dead languages and so on. But talking and thinking about an object, something he would refer to as as parasitic or something like it, that our our, our thoughts are shadows cast by things that are, and to have a thought about something that is not is like having a shadow without anything blocking the light. So, if we, and and this is part of the, the, the thirst, the drive, the desire to instantiate collectives, instantiate concepts, instantiate gods, instantiate classes, instantiate or make real abstract thoughts that are independent of... The sensual stimuli, the sense stimuli. Can you have a concept independent of the sense stimuli? Now, we can, of course, have concepts independent of sense stimuli by assembling various bits of sense stimuli, like the unicorn is the horse with the horn on its head. We've got a horn, we got a horse, we jam the two together, and Bob's your uncle, right? But can a concept exist independent of a thing that exists? Now, I I would argue, no, absolutely not. Concepts are imperfectly derived from instances. You cannot have. Now, you can assemble things for sure. Horns exist. Horses exist. You can jam a horn on a horse and call it a unicorn. That doesn't mean the unicorn exists. It just means that two things that do exist, you've put together. I would also say that eternity and infinity are negative terms. In other words, we can't conceive of eternity. We can't conceive of infinity. If you close your eyes and you concentrate very hard, you might be able to hold eight to nine little balls of light in your eyelids, right? Maybe, right? But of course, we can think of Googleplex numbers, or as my daughter used to, her biggest number when she was little was called a dillion quill, which now lives in eternity, (laughs) as this podcast will, I hope. So we have terms that negate, right? So we have a term called infinity, which is something we can't conceive of, and it's a negative label in that we can't directly experience. We have something called light. It's a concept. We can directly experience it. A foot I can directly experience, sometimes in the butt during a debate, right? So there are things we can directly experience, and those concepts are there, but some concepts are negative. So if we think of virtue that's something we can conceive of, we can strive to achieve. We think of perfect virtue, we can't achieve that. We think of health, that's something we strive for to achieve. We can't. There's no such thing as perfect health. We can't ever have perfect health. It's a meaningless concept, really. And so we take the good, we stretch it to infinity, and we get the God. But that's a negation of our experience. We are mortal. We have a concept of immortality, but that's a negative concept. It's simply what we are not. So... Why do people want the concepts to exist, right? If we can think of it, it must exist. Well, you know, which doctors can be kind of dangerous, so if you, and, and kings can be kind of dangerous. So when you have rulers and you say, the rulers over the collective who claim the god as their, uh, the local gods, the Greek gods as their justification for ruling, and you start to say, well, uh, concepts don't exist in the world and then I mean this is one of the charges against Socrates not believing in the gods of the city and corrupting the young but of course the gods of the city were used to corrupt the young by having them obey rulers who were merely mortal and often dangerous and foolish so why is there this drive to say concepts exist outside the mind in reality because authority authority Rule, kings, and the gods which hold up the kings and cause people to bow and scrape and obey—you start questioning those. I mean, you can see the trouble I got in for questioning the gods of our city, and you can understand. You could understand some hesitation here. You really, you really can. Now, you can push back and say, "Well, we can only talk about things that exist, and so on," and we can think of all the things that. Elves, uh, you can think of uh, leprechauns or or dryads. and These things don't exist. But, I mean, in a way, ghosts exist. We're all haunted. We're all haunted. I have memories of my father that I can never speak of because life is short and I have better things to talk about. And also because I simply could not explain everything about all my experiences with my father. And he lives within me. There are minds without bodies in the world. And the minds without bodies are the imprints of other people's personalities on us that live within our minds. Those our minds without bodies. They're not our minds. I mean, they're in our minds, but they're not of our minds. They're imprinted on us from outside. You know, like somebody brands you, the brand is on you, but it's not from within you. It's inflicted or impressed on from outside. We're all haunted mansions. We're all haunted. And I've known this forever. I have a whole the whole ecosystem concept that we're a, a big composition of various personalities and perspectives. Um, but I mean, you, you've heard me a million times in these call-in shows. I'll talk to someone and say, okay, let's do a role play. You be your mom, I'll be you, and blah, 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 and boom. Like, people just get it, bang on. And they'll have that. You know, I've had people, I've talked to the dead. I've had people whose mother has died 20 years ago, resurrect her and become her for the conversation, and they get it, bang on. And everyone who hears it knows that it's a bang on. That's a real person right there, right there. So yes there are minds without bodies that exist in our heads and so the idea of ghosts absolutely comprehensible so so he so he says parmenides says okay if you can think about it you can speak about it it exists and it's not even a therefore they're one and the same So then he says, there's no such thing as plurality. There's no such thing as movement. No such thing as change. And no such thing as anything coming into existence or dying off or ceasing to be. And you can think of of, of any object. If you're going to say a banana, right? A banana exists, okay? What was the banana before it existed? It was a smaller banana, a a seed, something on a tree. But it must have come from somewhere. Babies only grow because you put food in them. Their growth comes from somewhere. We know where the babies come from. So how can something come out of nothing? Bananas don't just pop into existence. They have to come from somewhere. Now... Philosophically, we have some issues and all that, but from a standpoint of pure baseline physics, guys totally correct. The orange hasn't come into existence. But if you got a bunch of Lego and you built a Millennium Falcon, the Millennium Falcon has not just come into existence, hasn't just appeared out of nowhere, like hyperspace. It's been assembled from the pieces of Lego. And the pieces of Lego didn't come from nowhere. They came from the Lego factory, but the Lego factory ordered the plastic and the parts and whatever they use to kill your feet, and, right? So things don't just pop into existence. The manifestation, particular matter, so you can get where he's coming from. Things can't be uh, destroyed. And he says, look, we can't think of something that isn't, and therefore things can't be destroyed. If we can't think of things that are not, Right. And and again, I, I can understand this in terms of we can't we can't think of eternity. We have a word for something, but we can't process it, we can't understand it. You can't think of a billion. Like you see all these things like, oh, here's a billion days, a billion seconds, is right. We can't conceive of a billion. We have a label for it, but we can't conceive of it. We can't fit a billion in our brains, except as a label for something we don't get. We don't understand. And I get we understand it has definition. I get that conceptually, but you can't hold in your mind a million dots of light or a billion dots of light. You can hold maybe eight or nine. I remember having an argument with my friend in our mid-teens about this and challenging him. And uh, he was very honest about it. He later became an economist. He's very honest about it. And he's like, like, oh, I can do way more than nine. I'm like, well, I don't think you can. (laughs) And he tried. He tried and he couldn't do it. And you try. So if we can't think of it, then it doesn't, exist. And we can't think of something that doesn't exist. And therefore, things can't go out of existence. Again, I'm giving you Parmenides' argument. Now, I mean, the tough one, to be frank, is movement. Yeah, movement can be challenging, particularly if you've had a lot of Indian food. So he says, okay, you got a ball. He doesn't say this, but but this is his argument. You got a ball, you hold it over the carpet, you drop it on the carpet. Boom, lands. Okay, so what you're trying to say is that you've got a ball and then there's a place where the ball is not. But we can't think of things that are not, things that are not don't exist. So there can't be a place where the ball isn't that it then moves into. Right, we can't think of nothing. We can't even entertain the idea of nothing. Therefore, the ball can't move into nothing. It can't move into the absence of a ball because we can't conceive of an absence of a ball. So it can't move into the absence of a ball. Movement can't be real. Okay, I mean, obviously we're getting a little trippy here, just giving you the argument, right? Uh, change, what about change? Well, change is coming into existence, going out of existence, none of these things are real, movement, not real. So, yeah, can't, can't be any kind of change, right? Now, again, at the atomic level, there's no change, right? And when you're a kid, if you're... A kid, you inherit a big dusty old box of Lego from someone and you build stuff with it. And is there much change? No. If you look at the Lego pieces, the Lego pieces don't change. Now, the plurality thing is, this is the monism, right? Everything is one. And again, we don't have the whole poem or argument. We don't have the whole thing. So, I, you know, there's not a very, very sort of clear answer of this, right? So, um, saying that everything is one, I'm not even going to attempt it uh, to to sort of follow his argument. People have guessed at it, so I'm not going to sort of deal with that. But uh, all of that. So, yeah, it's 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 a wild argument, and I can look. People have a because what is most human about us is our ability to have concepts that describe eternity, infinity, which describing atoms and their manifestations. That's an incredible thing that atoms give rise to a brain that can contain the concept of atoms and that both the concept and the atoms are eternal. Now, when I say the concept is eternal, I don't mean that the concept lives forever. If uh, all intelligent creatures in the universe get wiped out in some strange cataclysm, probably involving socialism, then, yeah, the concept is gone, but the concept is eternal because it describes that which is eternal. And the concept that is eternal lives in your mind, which is exceedingly temporary. I mean, people starting to wrestle with this. What's the mind? Like, once you get concepts, your mind leaps out to play among the vast wastes of the universe on a regular basis. And if that doesn't blow your mind... Before concepts, we're all just in our heads, right? We're just sense-based. We're just processing sense data like animals. But you get concepts and where they came from again, nobody has a clue. But they did, for sure. And so concepts is the God. The concepts are the God of the mind. Again, it's not an argument about the existence of God, but concepts are the God of the mind because they're perfect, they're eternal, they're infinite. And everything that we have, we can think of perfection. You can think of a perfect table, maybe different for different people, but you can think of perfect virtue. You can think of a perfect meal. You can think of a perfect foot if you want. And you may never, ever find it. You may never, ever experience it. And you probably won't, because I don't even know what the perfect meal would be. But the fact that our tiny, limited mortal minds can pack man up the entire universe from end to end, can analyze the surface temperatures of suns we will never get to, almost certainly. And the fact that people had to wrestle with this explosion of concepts that was taking us over, concepts hit us like a possession, like a demonic possession or a godlike possession. I mean, they take our animal minds and just stretch and rip and tear and spread and scatter and send out to explore in ways that are inconceivable. How can our limited mortal tiny brains merge with the eternity infinity of the entire universe and say things that are true about places we can't even exist like space. (sighs) So yeah some nutty stuff i think came out of this guy and some of the other pre-socratics but understand they were they were driving through an unbelievable storm of new meaning of new depth of new concepts. And the concepts existed and the concepts gave rise to the language and the language gave rise to the concepts and the language wrestled with the concepts and there was great danger in denying concepts because concepts are so incredibly powerful for ruling over people, aka countries which don't exist and are just concepts, rule over you and me every day of our lives. Concepts are so powerful for ruling over the questioning, the metaphysical reality of concepts is questioning the political basis of power which you do at your peril, which I did at my peril. So, the pre-Socratics, I think more than any other group of philosophers, are wrestling very deeply with this problem of the eternity and immortality of concepts being jammed inside a perfectly mortal and tiny brain. And, of course, the people who were educated, the people who... Uh, are remembered, the people who had leisure to discuss and think about these things and write lengthy poems like On Nature, these people benefited from concepts, the concepts of the upper class, the concepts of the rulers, the concepts of um, them being superior to slaves, slaves being a separate category of human beings, which they were not, of course, but this is what the concept was. So people who profited from concepts manifested in the world had a great deal of difficulty placing the concepts where they belong inside the human mind. They said concepts have to exist. And the more aristocratic the people, the more the concepts were deemed to be real because the concepts were the source of their wealth and power. (sighs) So I wanted to, sorry, this has been kind of a lengthy one, but I wanted to do this one really deeply and widely and powerfully because it is relatively easy to go back in time and say they're just playing crazy, but they were saner than what's going on in the modern world. And boy, by the time we get to that, you'll really understand where the hell we came from and where in hell we might be going. So, yeah, I hope this is helpful. Thank you so much for indulging my passion. Please, please help out the show. freedomaincom forward slash donate. Come on, you know I've earned it.